Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our briefing this morning. My name is Carol Werner, and I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. We are very pleased to hold this briefing this morning in coordination with TEP Transportation Energy Partners and the Napa Fleet Management Association. We're looking at topics, and obviously many of you are in town for a very, very important conference looking at the whole world of alternative fuels and fleets. What does this really mean for the country? Why is it important? Why do we care? What's the role of policy at the state and federal level in terms of addressing the whole issue of alternative fuels? We have been talking about the need to reduce oil use in this country for decades now. Fleets have often been seen as key uh, with regard to looking at the very important role of alternative fuels and that there have been many, many issues presented in terms of why it's important to move oil and to really look at a much more diversified fuel portfolio. And the issues range from obviously security issues, health issues, economic development, keeping energy dollars local, um, looking at overall security, what it means to um, put a, oh, still over a billion dollars out every day in this country for imported oil. And those are obviously dollars that could be used here in the United States in terms of other economic development. There are public health implications, environmental issues, so there are a range of issues about uh, around the whole issue of oil, alternative fuels, how do we do a better job with regard to all of our vehicles, and what is the appropriateness of different things in different places. I think that it's very exciting that there are about 100 clean cities coalitions around the country covering uh, 46 states. And this has grown considerably over the course of the last 20 years. Hopefully, we'll see it expand even further. There are a range of fuels and different applications that we are going to be hearing about this morning. And I think the other thing that's important, because what we will hear about from our speakers this morning, is they come from um, different places geographically, um, and of course some serve in many areas around the country in terms of having a broad range of stores that companies concern. And there are a range of applications and also a range of fuels in terms of looking at the diversity. And that's also important for us to understand that it's not just one answer, but we really are looking at a portfolio in terms of really encouraging diversification. And we'll hear about more about why and how these different uh, fuels have been selected in terms of their uses, and, and what's the status and the progress from our speakers. To start us off in terms of our discussion this morning, we're going to turn to Richard Battersby, who's Executive Director of the East Bay Clean Cities Coalition in California. But he is also a board member of TEP, of Transportation Energy Partners. He comes from a long background with uh, more than 25 years of experience in terms of working on alternative fuels, being involved with them in terms of fleet management, holds more than 40 different uh, uh, certifications of excellence with regard to fleet management, and has been uh, heading up fleet uh, management services for UC Davis uh, for a 
number of years. So we're very, very pleased for, uh, to have Richard uh, come up and, and provide kind of an overview of what we see with regard to looking at the cities and the overall uh, picture that we're then going to hear about more specifically from our remaining speakers. Richard. Thank you, Carol. Uh, like you mentioned, I have a pretty good background in fleet, and some of you might suspect that I'm not a public speaker uh, by trade, and by the end of this, I will confirm that suspicion. But uh, I'm here today with Transportation Energy Partners, and I want to talk a little bit about alternative fuel and the importance of federal policies uh, in reducing our nation's dependence on foreign petroleum. Next slide, please. Uh, just a brief overview on Transportation Energy Partner. We provide policy support to the Clean Cities Coalition, over almost 100 coalitions nationwide, and 18,000 stakeholders throughout the nation. Uh, we keep the stakeholders and the coalitions informed on important policies, initiatives, and funding opportunities. And as you see here today, we also educate decision makers about the importance of alternative fuels. Next slide, please. Uh, why are alternative fuels critical? And I got a nice visual up there. Uh, one of the key points, folks usually recognize the environmental aspect of alternative fuels, and they probably uh, get the energy security component as well. But there's a huge economic benefit to using alternative fuels since our nation currently spends over a billion dollars a day on foreign petroleum. And you can see by the visual, I've got Bill Gates there next to $10,000 bills. That's how much our nation sends overseas every day on petroleum products. And you might wonder, how do I know that's Bill Gates? Well, who else has 10 pallets of $100 bills in their garage? So, uh, next slide, please. Uh, I'm also the executive director of the Clean Cities Program, a little bit about Clean Cities, uh, a program that's sponsored by Department of Energy. I mentioned the numbers, 100 coalitions, 18,000 stakeholders. But what we do is we bring folks together. We're actually on the ground, uh, one of the only, or the only initiatives that actually are engaged with alternative fuel vehicle deployment and infrastructure deployment. And we bring folks together, uh, fleets, fuel providers, uh, infrastructure providers, sometimes funding providers, and we're just that uh, catalyst that brings everyone together for a successful project. Uh, okay, I'll just keep going. Anyway, uh, since 1993, we've displaced more than 5 million gallons, and that's very significant throughout the nation. And if my slide will work, oh, there it is, good. Uh, next slide, the little visual there shows the 5 million gallons. Uh, you can go back to the other one. That's it. Um, I mentioned before, benefits of alternative fuels, it's the three E's. It's the energy, the economic, and then the environmental security of our nation. All these things roll up to a, a much bigger picture, though. It's actually a, a, an issue of importance to national security. Uh, we spend a lot of time sending our armed folks in the armed forces, myself being a veteran, know this firsthand, uh, helping our allies who we rely upon for petroleum fuels. Uh, that billion dollars a day that we send overseas, if we could keep that here in the United States domestically, producing the fuels, making the vehicles, using the fuels here in the United States, there would be a huge economic benefit to our country, as well as the environmental aspect, too. Uh, Clean Cities deploys four main strategies, alternative renewable fuels, idle reduction measures, fuel economy improvements, and new technologies. We're focusing on the alternative fuels here today. Next slide, please. Uh, you might wonder, apologize to the slide.
fuels currently in use. The lion's share, almost 73%, uh, or excuse me, this shows the different strategies currently in use uh, to, or to uh, reduce our nation's dependence on foreign petroleum. The majority is alternative fuel and vehicles at 73%. That's the big green slice of the pie. Next slide, please. And this shows the contributions by fuel type, the different alternative fuels in use. Uh, the largest number, over 60%, is natural gas currently. Uh, Biodiesels at 17%, ethanol, E85 ethanol is at 11%, uh, propane about 8%, and electrics 3%. There are some others, hydrogen, a uh, small quantity. And the numbers at the bottom show just last year the petroleum displays by Queen City. Uh, year to year increase of almost 11%. We did 531 million gallons last year. Next slide, please. This shows the number of alternative fuel vehicles in, in use in our country. I'm not going to break down each one. I'm just going to point out a, a couple significant uh, points here. The purple numbers are E85 vehicles. It doesn't look very purple on that slide. It's the darkish blue on that version. Those are E85 vehicles. You can see there's a significant number over the last six or seven years. And even more importantly, that number does not include vehicles in the hands of private citizens. That's just fleet vehicles. So we have large numbers of E85 vehicles. The bar across the bottom represents electric vehicles, showing slow, steady growth. Next slide, please. This slide is the alternative fuel vehicle stations currently deployed. And as I mentioned on the previous slide, we've got large numbers of E85 capable flex fuel vehicles being deployed. But the number of the stations that are represented there across the bottom in green, the station count is still relatively small. So there's, there's a huge opportunity out there with E85 where the vehicles are out on the ground running. They're running on gasoline for the most part because we haven't uh, caught up with the vehicle count, with the station count. And then also, if you notice the top bars on the right, the light blue, those are electric vehicle stations. So we're getting a lot of electric vehicle stations out there on the ground, but the number of vehicles hasn't quite caught up to the station count. So those are sort of flip-flop scenarios. Next slide, please. So why is federal incentives and support important to these efforts? Well, we really need a combination of public and private partnership. We need the federal policies, and we also need the federal funding to continue these programs. It's very difficult to get some of these technologies from the laboratories out onto the ground. So it's, it's important that the federal government establishes policies and also provides funding to keep these programs going. Three key points that we're, we're hoping to communicate today is we want to ensure funding is maintained for federal programs such, such as the DOE Vehicle Technologies Program and the EPA Clean Diesel Program. We'd like to see the tax incentives for alternative fuel vehicles and infrastructure extended, and we'd also like to preserve the renewable fuel standard. Next slide, please. And to help us further the discussion, we brought some folks from the National Association of Fleet Administrators to talk about some very specific uh, alternative fuel vehicle projects. Um, NAFA is the premier fleet industry organization in the United States. It's been around since 1957. Uh, it's got over 2,200 fleet members that control over 6 million vehicles. And I will say the gentlemen at the table are my colleagues, not just from the industry and through NAFA, but also through the Clean Cities coalitions over the year. So we're going to hear from Claude Masters, who's from Florida Power and Light, and he's president of the NAFA Fleet Management Association. And then Jeffrey Jeter, who's the fleet manager of Chesterfield County, Virginia, and treasurer of NAFA. And also Steve Saltzgiver, who's vice president of fleet Manager management for public services, 
and chair of NAFA's Government Affairs Committee. So with that, I'll turn the microphone over to Paul. Some time. 
plug-in hybrid electrics are becoming more and more common from an OEM perspective. And you'll also see a lot of battery electric vehicles making their way into the marketplace. So with that, next slide please. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about how this, uh, the technology is evolving in the medium and heavy duty truck market. So FPL was uh, very heavily involved in the development of hybrid bucket trucks for use at job site. We actually chaired a working group that partnered with uh, the Department of Defense and CalSTAR to help develop this technology. And today we have 74 of those vehicles in, in, our, uh, in our fleet with a, uh, a great deal of success with the operational experience with those vehicles. We've also incorporated a number of battery electric vehicles in our fleet. We've got uh, Transit Connects and International E-Stars in our fleet as well. So we get a lot of operational experience with those vehicles about what works, what applications to put them in, and where they're better suited in regards to uh, in, in, in regards to the way that they operate in the in the real world. So, uh, next slide, please. So through our efforts, we received quite a bit of, uh, for lack of a better term, public accolades, and it depends. Uh, there's a lot of industry journals out there that print where you're at and compare fleets to each other. Some are self-reporting, but we uh, we have been awarded the eighth largest hydroelectric fleet uh, in the nation by Green Fleet Magazine last year. And um, we're continuing to escalate the, the way that we uh, apply that technology. So we were having a conversation last night, and, and I think that the, the point that we try to we would like to try to make today is that um, you know, a lot of people will debate what technology is the best or what fuels the cleanest. But I can tell you for sure the one thing that I've learned over my years of experience is the cleanest gallon of fuel that we'll ever burn is the one that we don't have to burn. So the point is, is that as you stack these technologies, so like when we take our hydroelectric bucket trucks that can run on the job site, in, in electric mode, run the electric PTO, and then you stack that with a B20 biodiesel blend in your truck, so you now displace 20% of your petroleum burn, so a typical bucket truck that might burn 10 gallons of fuel a day is down in the neighborhood of 5 to 6 gallons of petroleum diesel. So um, we think that's a commendable effort. Next page, please. And so I want to talk just real briefly about our, our biodiesel program because we're, we're real proud of it. The Department of Energy tells us that we're one of the largest users of biodiesel in the southeast. Uh, we have over 1,700 trucks in our fleet that run on B20 daily. Um, and, and, you know, the thing that often comes into play is we don't have any, um, lack of a better term, issues with operating biodiesel that you hear from time to time from other people. And a lot of it has to do with the way that we buy and blend our own fuel. We are a registered fuel blender, so we buy B100 and blend it ourselves in our, we have a two million gallon storage tank that we put it in. And so we, we buy a very tight fuel spec. We understand that the feedstock comes from a renewable source and it's domestically grown, so we're very proud of that. And then you can see the numbers that, um, in regards to the emissions reductions and the total energy usage that we see year over year. That, that is, a, is a kind of shining testament to how effective those programs can be when you look at 
the way that you operate your vehicles and you see year over year that your fuel burn is going down and yet your fleet count continues to be steady or gradually increases, you know that you're having a positive impact. So with that, I, you know, I think the last uh, thing that I'd like to say about that is, is that it, uh, it helps you when, you when you know that you can see that you're making a difference and it aligns with your corporate strategy or corporate vision to do everything that you possibly can do to not only help reduce our dependence on oil, but also reduce the, uh, the emissions, the overall emissions profile of our fleet. So with that, I think I might be a little bit ahead, which I like to, I thought that was going to run long, but I really want to try to save some time at the end for questions. So with that, I'm going to turn the podium over to my comrade, Mr. Jeff Jeter. Last year, so it's a little low. 
Everything was going good until uh, January, February. That's when all the cold air hit out west, and we started missing the propane. The uh, supply wasn't there, and cost really went high. So we lost it in um, in February, but then March, April, they were starting to come back up now. So this is what I'm I track here every month on that. Next slide, please. This here is just a comparison. What I'm showing it shows like in October, I got purchased 345 gallons of auto gas. And what is shown in the next column is the metric tons of CO. If I didn't use gasoline for that amount, I would have been 3.05. Uh, the LP was 2.01, so I had a 1.05 reduction for that month. So overall, you can see that there's a 15.4 reduction by using the LP over gasoline in metric tons, and then pounds of CO, it was almost 34. So these are just comparisons that I'm running to show that even a small municipality fleet, you know, we're doing our part of saving. This is the one I'm really happy with. Um, I did with my sheriff's department. This is actually on 20 vehicles. Um, I was showing it roughly 27,000 miles per year. And it's got GPM, uh, MPG for gasoline is 15, and propane is roughly 12, 7. You lose a little bit. But um, price-wise, gas at this time was $3.14, propane is 126. So you can see the savings. A monthly savings per vehicle is $253. So for all 20 vehicles, I actually saved almost $61,000 that year. And I looked at that and I went back to my officials and I said, $61,000, what can we do with that? Did we just save off gasoline? That was two and a half to three police cruisers we could have purchased. There's two full-time positions we could put in. So it helped fund a lot of different areas. So I'm real happy with that. And uh, this does not include school buses. This was just 20 police cruisers that we had that savings on. Uh, next slide, please. And this is just some of the things I'm showing on my service vehicles we've actually done. Uh, this is one that I actually, with Atlanta Auto Gas, helped me um, take care of the conversion on this one. This is just one of my service vehicles that we have out for our school division that runs all over the county. Put the decals on it. The public is really supporting us, wanting us to do more. But um, the funding, you know, I'll plead to you guys just a little bit on that. Next slide. This is one of my police cruisers. That's just one of the markings on the back. Um, I can't put a whole lot of details on the police cruisers. Colonel, uh, I think. But by law, I've got a little propane sticker on the back right there. Next slide. And this just shows you know, how easy it is with conversion. This is actually in the, in the trunk of a Ford police cruiser. It's just a double tank up in, in the wheel well area. It's very simple to work on. Next slide. This is the fuel site, and I'll talk about how easy it is to, to install this. Uh, my work in relation with Alliance Plastic Fuel, and we talked about this. This, this unit came in with skid now, and I'm talking 30 days. It took me longer to run the power from my building to this tank than it did for these guys to put them in any good operations for me. That's how quick we got it up and going. That's why I picked auto gas for my camera. Next slide. This is a larger tank. Um, the first one I showed you was roughly 1,000 gallons. This one's 10,000 gallons. I had this at a previous job that I had when I had the school division on there. And again, we probably had this one installed within 90 days. It's just a little bit larger tank. You couldn't come in with a skid. I had to get a crane to come in and pick that tank up and sit it on its pedestals. Next slide. And this is just a dispenser. You know, it shows that, you know, it shows all the gallons used. It's got a keypad where I can track all the information. It's just a very simple, clean operation for this. Next slide, please. So how can you help? And that's what I'm looking for right now. 
Um, I would love, like Rick said, I'd love to see the taxes that have come back. This really helps the municipalities like mine. You know, when we get that 50 cents per gallon rebate back to go towards converting more vehicles. Definitely grant funding. Um, the slide I showed you, $61,000, that was actually through Virginia Clean Cities. I was able to get those at no cost to my county. I just had to provide the vehicle. And that was a no-brainer for me to sell that. Um, currently, from Chesterfield County, we're actually having to fund all of this because the grant money is gone. I mean, Virginia Clean Cities did all they could do. And, um, you know, Hoping and praying they're getting more funding because the municipalities are really excited about moving forward with auto gas in our area. Um, work on more funding for infrastructure. So I hear a lot of talk within my state where we're trying to get public-private um, partnership on our fuel infrastructures, which could be compressed natural gas, could be LP, could be all, but we just need help with the funding. Um, one of the big things I'd like to see is OEMs. You know, get together with Congress and everybody and see what they can do about actually making a true biofuel um, propane vehicle so that we can buy it from the OEMs like that without doing the conversions. I know that hurts my partners with Alliance Auto Gas and all, but it would make it a lot easier for municipalities to do that. And um, just help reduce some of the red tape. Um, there's so much red tape to go through, but we have that everywhere. But our local governments, we're trying our best to bring them. We're all excited in like Claude was saying Napa. We've got so many different little cities and counties within the state of Virginia. Everybody's on board wanting to go with the LP because it is currently the cheapest, quickest, and best way for us. Um, we're looking at CNG, we're looking at E85, we've got all those, but the fuel infrastructures are just not there. Um, I'm really excited about auto gas. That's the way I'm going with. Um, I've got my shop certified. We can actually do the install ourselves now. We're certified to work on them. And all that came from funding and help from the last all year. So, uh, that's all I got. Thank you. I'll turn to our last speaker before we open it up for Q&A, who is Steve Salskiver, who is Vice President of Public Management for Public Services. And he brings a very rich background, having been also uh, a fleet manager for Coca-Cola Refreshments for the state of Georgia and also for the state of Utah. Thank you very much. Um, it's good to be here and uh, speak a little bit about some alternative fuels. I've been now in this business, uh, I always say over 30 years now, it's probably getting closer to 40 years, but uh, <clears throat> I've had the opportunity to work for several different states and and uh, opportunity to work for a couple of private companies as well. Uh, just uh, recently joined Republic Services, and uh, so I'm still getting uh, my feet on the ground there. But uh, Republic Services is, I'll tell you a little bit about the company. It's a re what many of you may know. Uh, some of you live in the Washington area, you'll see uh, refuge trucks running around with AAA on the side. That's one of our subsidiaries um, here in this area. Republic Services is a feeding Based company, so if you see me yawning up here, it's because it's about six o'clock in the morning back where I'm from. But um, we're an industry leader in uh, waste management, and the Fortune 500 company, we have about 30,000 employees in 40 states in Puerto Rico. We operate 332 uh, collection companies and 195 transfer stations. As I walked out of the hotel yesterday morning and uh, on my way to breakfast, I could uh, smell a transfer station somewhere close. That to us is the smell of money. So, in this business, uh, 
We do everything we can to uh, take care of our customers. Customers are what we're all about. And uh, we have uh, currently about 1,800 uh, natural gas vehicles that are operating. And so why, why natural gas for us? Let's uh, talk about history reduction focus. It's a little bit hard as we talk by turn. So look at that, uh, forgive me. Um, CNG trucks are, are what we're focused on at uh, <clears throat> Public Services. Uh, in my previous uh, background, it was mentioned that uh, Coca-Cola, for example, we were working on, uh, we had 800 uh, hybrid electric trucks, and we were doing some CNG, some, some, um, some uh, biodiesel. So, the one thing that uh, you've heard from our panel up here is that there is not one size fits all. And uh, depending on the business that you operate and the, the opportunities that you have, you need to really adapt to uh, what makes sense for your business. Having worked for uh, two different states and four different governors, uh, we had quite a portfolio that we put together for each of those applications as well. And so one of the things that I will say is I've gone through uh, our different states and fleet management is uh, you become pretty diverse in your background of what works in alternative fields. Um, one of the things that uh, we're working on currently is a hydraulic hybrid, which is uh, not a real new technology, it's been around for a while, but that's also a, a good application for the refuge business. And so we're testing currently out in uh, Chula Vista, California, a couple of vehicles. We're going to be moving that to uh, Cleveland here shortly and making a, a couple tests there. Uh, we're hoping that that technology is uh, very lucrative for us to, to try in addition to CNG in our portfolio. Um, a couple of uh, applications we had at Coca-Cola when I was there were the uh, hybrid electric vehicles which run much like a Prius. You know, that you turn the engine off and we were all talking just earlier and uh, I always like Claude's statement about uh, the, the cleanest fuel is the one you don't burn. And you think about uh, what we're trying to do in, in big uh, industrial applications, commercial applications, is we're trying to not burn fuel in, in any, any time where it's wasted. And probably the biggest waste is when that truck is idling. And uh, you don't have an opportunity all the time to save that fuel unless you can figure out a way to shut that truck down. Um, so what some of the things that uh, other applications we're using are telematics. Um, we're monitoring the uh, weight management. Uh, imagine in the refuge business and one of those trucks uh, has about a 12-ton payload as we're going uh, you know, from stop to stop and by the time we get down. And so the more we can manage that way through better routing, um, better uh, uh, route optimization, uh, driver behavior is a big key factor. So we're looking at all types of solutions besides alternative fuels as we go forward. Uh, next slide. We can go to the next slide. Um, one of the things that we look at in public services is, uh, you know, why, why are we doing this? First of all, it's the right thing to do. As a corporate citizen and a corporate partner, we want to be economically responsible. In uh, public services, if you see our star, it's made up of five R's, and one of those stars is responsible. And so as we go through, we look at uh, different applications, we want to make sure that we're, we are that corporate citizen. Uh, it's cleaner. The emissions are lower, it's increasingly uh, alternative fuels are mandated, but uh, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do in our business. It's local, natural gas is abundant here in the United States, it's a, a domestic fuel, and probably the best thing uh, for public service or any Fortune 500 company like we are is it's, it's cheaper. 
and it helps us uh, grow the bottom line as we're out there competing for customers and business. Next slide. Uh, the solid waste industry is uh, a large uh, natural gas vehicle market. Uh, there's about 2 billion gallons a year in our market, 200,000 trucks that are addressable. And uh, so you can imagine the, the size of this, the scope of this market. And this is a really, CNG is a good application for the refuge industry. We do a lot of start and stop, as you can imagine, as we're picking up uh, uh, commercial, municipal, and residential uh, trash. As we go through, uh, we're burning a lot of a lot of fuel. You know, we we measure fuel by uh, the gallons per hour and the cost per hour versus the miles per gallon, like traditionally. We're currently running uh, somewhere around uh, fourteen dollars uh, an hour for diesel fuel, and natural gas is about ten dollars an hour. So that gives you kind of the scale and scope of what we're operating out there. So every single a gallon we can save per hour really helps uh, our, our bottom line. Also helps the the, um, the market out there, and, and certainly our health. You know, people uh, out there in the market. Um, most of our trucks have somewhere between 35 and 50 uh, diesel gallon equivalents on them, and CNG. And one of the things that we consider as we go and start deploying this is that our fleet returns to base energy. So we have uh, our infrastructure put on site and then we uh, connect those at night and plug them in. So that's one of the things that we look at. And CNG actually for us requires a little bit less infrastructure um, than some of the other applications out there. Thanks, guys. This just uh, gives you an idea of what we were deployed uh, just last year. We currently have uh, 1,800 trucks in service, which is about 12% of our 16,000 fleet. Um, and you can see uh, we put those in uh, very key markets. Um, we're continuing to have steady growth. We built 10 fueling stations in, uh, in 2013. Those stations are uh, a few million dollars each to build. It cost us about uh, 400,000 to 400,000 just to upgrade our shops so that we can work on these vehicles. So we've got quite a, an investment in this technology. We have a total of uh, 31 fueling sites now nationwide. Uh, we, that's 31 of about 400 uh, operations that we're currently running. Next slide. This is just a, a glide path, giving you kind of an idea where we're going uh, with our natural gas operation. Um, currently, we're in 2014. We're adding about um, four to 500 trucks a year as we go through the process. And, Pipeline. 
um, have adequate space. Uh, as you can imagine, we upfit our shops. Um, and we want to make sure we have the, the proper uh, permitting that ha has to happen as you go through the work for the cities. It takes us about one year uh, of prep work to put in one of these uh, operations. Uh, we go through and we work through the construction and the city planning zoning and all those uh, different things that you have to go through to, to get these sites deployed. Our fleet composition, uh, we look at our replacement cycle. Uh, as, you, as you imagine, there's a couple of, uh, and I'll talk about a couple of advantages and disadvantages, but uh, when you deploy um, these, these vehicles, we're trying to do about, really the, the sweet point for us is about 50 trucks at a site. And uh, if we go into a site with 100 trucks, we're replacing half that fleet in one year. And uh, that gives us some logistical hoops that we have to jump through uh, down the road because now that means in uh, 10 years, half that fleet is due for replacement. So we've had to devise some, uh, some creative strategies to go in and what we call our trickle-down truck strategy. Where we'll take trucks and we'll start logistically moving those around the country to fill in gaps so that we can offset some of that. So as those trucks begin to age, we trickle them down and move them around. And, and we've had to do that to, uh, to keep our, our costs down uh, to make this uh, economically feasible. Next slide. Um, one thing I mentioned earlier, um, and you've heard a lot of us talk about this, there is no one-size-fits-all. So you have to be aware that when you're a fleet manager, um, location makes a big difference, just like real estate. Location, location, location. We want to make sure we have these in the right spot. Um, the shop improvements and zoning I talked about are critical. You need to make sure you have all everything in place before you deploy these. And then uh, one of the other challenges that we have uh, in the market is we don't have enough suppliers. Um, currently in, in our market with natural gas, we have one engine supplier, and that's uh, Cummins Diesel. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we would like to see is a little bit more competition in that. Uh, probably Cummins would not like to see more competition, but uh, for us that would be critical as we go forward and, uh, and really look at deploying more of these vehicles. Uh, some of the other challenges that we have are, as I mentioned, logist logistics can be a challenge for us. So you're moving 60,000 trucks all around the country to try and uh, accommodate or support deploying some of these vehicles. Uh, weight and payload are a big uh, challenge for, for the refuge industry. We have a lot of bridge laws out there that we have to maintain and meet. And uh, as you put in different engines and add tanks to trucks, that adds increased weight. So we're having to, wherever we add weight, we have to take away weight so that don't decrease our payload. Uh, payload to, to the refuge industry is money. And so we've had to uh, go through and really look at that, uh, all the opportunities to scale those down. Um, there's a lot of creative uh, things happening in the industry. A lot of our partners are really helping us to manage some of those uh, obstacles that we, that we see. One of the things, too, that uh, we don't talk about a lot, the power outage is, a, is an opportunity or a challenge for us. If we lose power, we can't charge trucks, and so we have to have emergency generators uh, on all of our sites where we deploy those uh, operations. Uh, next. next slide. This just gives you uh, an idea of what our fill sites look like. You go into any one of our operations around the country, it pretty much looks exactly like this. Our operators will back into those sites, plug them in, and uh, let them fill overnight so that they're ready for the next day's use. And that's uh, a pretty slick, easy way to do. 
uh, the fill-up, and uh, we're having pretty good luck, uh, good morale with our drivers, so it's been very well received around the country um, where we deployed the Probably the best thing about the natural gas operations that we're operating in the public is our customers like it. Uh, we've won several contracts, so from an economical standpoint, that's a big benefit as well, because the communities want cleaner air, they want another we're good corporate citizens, and so that's a big advantage. Next slide. And then, and finally, this, this really talks about what I just said, but I mean, ultimately, uh, benefits for the environment, uh, benefits for operational. I was just in uh, Houston about a month ago, and we were uh, bringing our board of directors for the public down there to look at our uh, operation in the Houston area. We had three trucks lined up uh, sitting outside our shop, and uh, you can hear the two diesel trucks out there running. And uh, we asked uh, the diesels to shut down their trucks, and the CNG truck was running also, but you could not hear it. And it was uh, very compelling to see that. And you know, quiet trucks, especially refuse trucks, when they're rolling around your neighborhood at 7 in the morning, that's a big advantage to our customers. We're not waking up anybody, and we're rolling through the town pretty quiet. So uh, we see that as a big advantage. Obviously, the financial benefits, uh, we, we see almost the savings of $3 an hour in fuel. And then uh, our customers are starting to really identify with natural gas. And that's becoming more and more of a, a request as we start working with our customers out there in the Last slide. So uh, that's, that's all I have. Um, we'll uh, take questions. and. Uh, Well, that was terrific, uh, all of you. Uh, a lot of information, and again, it's always compelling to hear uh, also in such a short period of time in terms of looking at the, the range of applications, uh, the diversity of fuels, the, all of the reasons, the multiple benefits uh, of why alternative fuels, and, and it also makes good sense in terms of economics. So whether it's security, public health, environment, and obviously the economics have to work, and the numbers that you were talking about, very, very impressive. So let's open it up for your questions and comments. Okay. I'm a little concerned about the support for natural gas in terms of the environmental destruction from fracking, the toxic chemicals, um, which seems to be trading clean air for clean water, and the notion of still having to drill and have pipelines and the environmental destruction often associated with that. I've heard of garbage trucks in upstate New York that are 100% plug-ins, so I'm wondering what the future of that is, what is the future of burning garbage um, for fuel. I do believe Henry Ford had a hemp-operated electric car. Is anyone looking at hemp as a source of fuel? Switchgrass was talked about at one time. I'm, um, I'm heartened by some of the emphasis on the electric vehicles and hopefully batteries will um, somehow improve to extend the charge and the mileage for charge. But in the meantime, what about some of these other options? Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll tackle that one um, 
first on the fracking issue, uh, natural gas in the transportation industry is actually less than 1% of all natural gas used in the United States. And uh, we try not to, to make the association with fracking um, taking a position one way or the other. Uh, we also know that the major uses of natural gas are currently for heating and electricity, so it's rather unfair to come to the transportation industry that represents less than 1% of the natural gas to raise the fracking issue. Um, that being said, the other technologies are, are certainly viable. You mentioned something about burning uh, trash for fuel. We actually have several significant projects that take landfill um, waste and turn it into vehicle fuel. I can give you a classic example from within the East Bay Clean Cities Coalition region. We've got the Altamont landfill that waste management, sorry, sorry Steve, uh, one of the competitors of public, public services. Um, we got that project installed and it pr produces 13,000 gallons of liquefied natural gas each day. And that's not a typo. 13,000 gallons of fuel from trash that's producing the natural gas that's used in that vehicle. Extremely low carbon content. It, it comes pretty close, close to a closed loop scenario where the trash trucks go out, they bring uh, trash into the landfill, which then composes and makes the fuel so those trucks can go out and get more trash. And there is great promise with battery electric. Uh, need a little more work on the heavy duty side. At Clean Cities, we support all alternative fuels. We're not uh, invested in one or the other. The way to be successful is to offer customers or fleet users choice, and by having the full spectrum of fuels out there, that's how we achieve success. So I hope I've answered your questions. And I'd like to add too that uh, at Republic, we have seven new landfill and gas energy projects currently underway. So we're doing the same thing that uh, you mentioned about waste management. Also, having worked at Coca-Cola for the last several years before I joined Republic, uh, I see the battery industry as very viable. We're actually looking at uh, partnering to test some of that in the refuge industry now. The uh, biggest challenge you have with the battery in, in this industry is the weight, the added weight that you have. So when you have the weight on the battery, you have to take that out somewhere. So we're continuing to look at that. I, we just actually met with a company last week to start some testing on some of those and uh, uh, wrap up some projects to do that. So uh, I, I personally think it's a potentially viable uh, technology, all-electric. Uh, I'm a big proponent of all-electric. We had uh, several dozen of those at Coca-Cola when I was there. And uh, it's a good technology. And it's a very clean, you know, technology. So. And if I could just add real quick a, a comment to that. So we were having a discussion about, you know, everybody wants to pick a winner, right? Who's going to be the winner in the long game? But at the end of the day, the, the tech not the technology developments that have been made with uh, battery electric and hydroelectric vehicles are pretty significant. Here's why. Because whether or not you believe that the battery electric vehicles will, will win the end game or not, the work that's been done in tor towards uh, electrifying all the ancillary components like electric air conditioning, power steering, power brakes, so on and so on, that's enabled the auto manufacturers to take parasitic load loss off an internal combustion engine and that will migrate over into the heavy duty trucking world and that's a monster that we haven't even addressed yet. I mean we're we got a lot of work to do in, in regards to that but if you think about it though you know if you can take 45 to 70 horsepower 
of load loss off of an internal combustion engine. That enables you to downsize that power plant, make it more fuel efficient. So the work is significant. Okay, so we shouldn't really we shouldn't discount that. And in regards to um, the the actual battery electric vehicles themselves, obviously the um, you know the the holy grail of that is all about energy density, right? How much energy can you get into that into that packaging? So there's a lot of work that's being done on that, and I can tell you that that it's accelerating much faster than what most people think it is. So in terms of the chemistry and the cost. So I, I think what you're going to see is, is that that aspect of the marketplace is going to accelerate much faster than what most people think it is. Great. Good, good explanation. And, and I think one of the things that it's so easy to forget, too, is that the more that the more work that is done, the more deployment of a lot of different technologies, it keeps pushing the R&D forward, and, and it helps uh, technology developers also see that there are people that are interested in looking at different things, and you've got to deploy in order to sort of push the development of the, of the technology forward. So, um, and, and I think it's been very impressive how quickly some of these developments on the electrification and batteries, I mean, after seeing it look like nothing going on for a long time, that there are now huge strides. And I think all of the biogas that we're seeing on the landfill projects and a lot of wastewater treatment projects is, is also very, very exciting. So that everything gets turned into a resource. Um, thank you. Okay, question clear to that. Hi, Charlie Earl, Electric Vehicle Association. I was wondering if anybody had done a comparison between the propane and the natural gas and electricity on an apples-to-apples sort of comparison, dollars per mile or dollars per gallon equivalent or something like that. Um, I think they're all very reasonable, and I was wondering if uh, one's ahead or was that dynamic changing as we see natural gas prices going up and down? Or what's the perspective in that regard? Has anybody done that sort of look? Um, I haven't actually done that comparison as, as you described, but as a fleet manager, that's one of our, our primary functions is to determine total cost of ownership for vehicles. The reason that the, I think the study that you just asked about doesn't exist in, in my area is I haven't made that comparison yet, but there are tools online. Um, there's a total cost of ownership calculator that the uh, Department of Energy has created. It's on the Alternative Fuel Data Center website, so you can kind of plug in the variables just like you described. It's actually a really useful tool because it compensates by region for the cost of not just the fuels, but also the electricity and then the environmental impact as well. So I suggest uh, for those numbers, you head to the Alternative Fuel Data Center website. I imagine that um, the reason we don't see studies like that out and published is because it changes so quickly, not just from year to year or from quarter to quarter, but from month to month. So as um, uh, more interest is there, you may see some published studies, but it'll just be ballpark figures. If you want specifics, go to the Alternative Fuel Data Center website and it should give you the answer. And, and like I mentioned, we don't prefer one fuel over the other. Uh, we just present information and let the consumers kind of figure it out for themselves because what works in one area for one particular industry, and right here we've, we've got private industry, we've got a utility, 
uh, we've got a local government, myself, a university. What works for me in California may not work for a university in another part of the country, may not even work for a university or a commercial fleet right in my neck of the woods.
But I do think um, what you mentioned is a, a surprising thing to me from an older young perspective is that you don't see more start-stop technology because it's a, a very low-cost way to get a pretty significant amount of fuel savings. So a uh, message to the OEMs would be, you know, let's incorporate the technology into, into more vehicles. There are some things you can do to offset the weight. Obviously, if you put electric uh, powertrains on, you can decrease your, your fuel capacity to offset some of that weight. Uh, interesting to hear, uh, regenerative braking for us is a big win in the refuge industry because we do a lot of start and stops. You have residential routes with over a thousand stops on them. You think about the wear on your brakes. We, don't, we have some trucks that don't even go eight months before we have to rewind those brakes. So uh, that would be a big win for us. Well, I have some good news for you also. Uh, the Department of Energy Vehicle Technologies program is very interested in new and emerging technology. This is an area that they're, they're looking at. Hybrids is clearly one of the main uh, ways to improve fuel economy. And also being from the state of California, the California Energy Commission is also interested in this specific application. And there's some current funding opportunities right now to do some demonstration projects for heavy-duty natural gas hybrids, there are a couple of companies that have already stepped forward. Um, there might even be three of them. And uh, getting to your fuel cell question, again, being in California, um, there's a pretty aggressive plan to create the hydrogen highway. There should be 61 stations out here in the near future. Uh, I think the number now is closer to 20. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, and 2015 is the year for commercial release of fuel cell vehicles. These are going to be light-duty applications. Um, I'm not really sure on, I'm sure they can be used, fuel cells can be used in fleet applications. I'm just not sure about this first release of vehicles since they tend to be light-duty to target the consumer. I suspect that fleets aren't the primary target uh, for that initial release. But the good news is commercial fuel cells are going on sale in California by 2015 which is right around the corner. And who knows what all of that's going to drive once things really do come into the market. And I think that it's also, it was really, really interesting to hear your whole discussion um, about all of you with regard to looking at the hybridization of technologies. Because so often, I mean, that's really how we do end up providing much more efficiency. As you said, the more fuel that we can save um, is, is the best of all. And, and so often, if we just look at how we can blend technologies, put them all together, so that we really optimize the overall benefits, um, and reduce noise, um, too, as, as another added benefit, too, the more we are electrifying uh, some, of these, uh, some of these applications. Uh, I think there was a question over here. Go ahead. Good morning. You all sort of touched on um, different federal incentives especially the 50 cent rebate. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on incentives at the state or even local level, especially state legislatures and the state public utility commissions, and um, what those incentives could look like in terms of alternative fuels. Uh, just to repeat the question, um, I'm going to summarize. Uh, what, what is the importance or significance of state incentives similar to the 50 cent alternative fuel tax credit, and what would these state incentives look like? I'm just going to say they're obviously important to us. I mean, you look at a uh, natural gas vehicle, for example, they're about $30,000 incremental cost, and uh, 
the, the trash truck nowadays, uh, the common truck is about $300,000 investment. So adding another 30000 is 10% uptick on that. So obviously any incentives we can get uh, private business to offset those costs is, is welcome. And we have taken advantage of those, both in my role here at Republic and then previously at uh, Coca-Cola, where we, in, I think over a two or three year period at Coca-Cola, I think we leveraged about $20 million you know, in, in, in savings to help us deploy that fleet. So um, I think that's a big advantage, and the, the more municipality and the federal government can do that, that really helps to spur the industry. And I can echo that too. I mean, with the small municipality government fleet, you know, we're looking for that 50 cent rebate, you know, per gallon we purchase. And also the state that we just got a thousand dollar per vehicle rebate. So um, I've got roughly six, seven thousand dollars back. So what I can do is turn around and take that money and reinvest it right back and convert two more vehicles. So with our budgets the way they are, you know, all the tax credits we can get, um, our goals, we just put it right back into another bid to get another clean energy one out there. I think there it needs to be a combination of federal and state or local incentives. It's, it's sort of this big network of opportunities that help folks make the decision. <clears throat> I really like the fuel tax credit, but also um, rebates are very effective. California has a very effective voucher program as well, which is kind of interesting. Is that there's two schools of thought. Do you incent the vehicle at the time of purchase, and then do you offer a rebate after it's purchased? Well, California hasn't figured out which one is best because they're both extremely successful. So those, the fuel tax incentive by gallon is really good. Uh, credits, I mean, excuse me, rebates or, or voucher incentives are also very effective methods. And I think it needs to go a little bit farther than just the state level. It gets down to the local level in California where we have a network of air quality management districts, air pollution control districts. Uh, we also have funding opportunities through our Metropolitan Planning Organization in the Bay Area happens to be the uh, Metropolitan Transportation Commission. So we have this network of funding providers that working together can make, make projects like this much easier for folks to implement. But I think state and local is essential. But we, we don't want to rely on just the federal government to drive these programs forward. Any other comments? Okay. okay. Um, but it also sounds like, as you said, that it really does need to be a combination to provide the greatest effectiveness for, uh, for police and to really move alternative fuels into, into the mix. Um, okay, we have time for one more question, if there is one. Okay, uh, I want to thank our panel very, very much, and great job in terms of providing a lot of information. Uh, I think really, really key points that as you talk to policymakers, um, to the public, that all of these are very, very important issues that help us all much better understand technology that fuels the local benefits 